Okay, let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts. Um, <clears throat> I have a question for us. Who of us loves cotton candy? Cotton candy lovers. All right, Samira waving. All right. Personally, I love cotton candy. I mean, it's so good. You go to the fair or whatever. Can I get a witness, Jack? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, by the way, there's not many people that eat more sugar. Uh, it, uh, <laughs> I've seen that kid eat sugar. Anyways, uh, another one back there. Okay. Uh, I'm sure it's healthy for something. Uh, anyways, uh, uh, but cotton candy, don't you just love how, you know, it's wispy? And, and, and you take it and, and you put it in your mouth and, 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 and what happens? It just, it just melts away. It's so, so good. And I just, what, what is it? How does it make me feel? I feel so good when I eat cotton. It's just like, you know, the sugar rush goes to the brain, right? And it releases good feelings. And, 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 then, you, and then it makes you just want more, Right? Just feels so good, and, and it's funny how it, it looks like there's just so much, those big, wispy, and, and yet it goes so fast. Um, mm, and now they make it at, like, family video, and you can get it not just at, you know, baseball games or the fair or whatever. Um, love cotton candy. You know, one of the criticisms of 21st century church is that we love cotton candy messages. Are you with me there? We love God to be our cotton candy God with cotton, cotton candy sermons, cotton candy interpretations of the Word of God, and we just love to go and grandpa cotton candy God, kind of wispy, and we get a little wisp and we put it in our mouth and oh, it just melts in our mouth, it makes us feel so good. And we just want to come back for more. Are you with me there? Cotton candy God. Cotton candy messages. Um, messages that really don't challenge our lives much or call us to holiness or godliness. Messages more that are designed to make us feel good, so we'll come back for more. So I'm going to put a warning sticker on this message. This is hazardous to your cotton candy God and your cotton candy views of yourself. And you may not want to come back. Matter of fact, you may want to leave in the middle of this one. Okay, but I would charge us to open our minds and hearts to who God really is and what His message for us really needs to be at times. And if you're looking for a better feeling good type message, go to Grayson's class downstairs on the spirit because he's going to talk about the incredible love of God. Amen, right, Grayson? All right, so, so we're balanced here, but at this moment, we need to let the Bible say what it says in our study of the book of Acts. And uh, um, uh, we're going to be talking today about the fear of the Lord, the fear of God. And it, actually, it's going to be super inspiring, I, I hope, I believe. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we're studying through the book of Acts, and this is where uh, we left off last week. We're going to 
cover uh, chapter 4, 32 through chapter 5, verse 16. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so, so far, so good. Amen? Uh, we're seeing great things because of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit onto and into the people of God. We're seeing God do, and the Spirit do incredible things in and around the church so far. In Acts chapter 2, we see thousands literally become disciples in one day. How about a day for in our day? Amen? Someday, we'll have 3,000. Boy, Nicole's going to have a hard time lining up the journey shares after that, huh? Anyways, um, so we're seeing great things. We're seeing a cripple healed, but we also see persecution. But the, the disciples overcome that, come together and pray. We see uh, the, the disciples speaking the word boldly. Here we see a great unity. They were all together. They were one in heart and mind. That's incredible. It's hard to get a marriage one in heart and mind. That's two people, right? Much less immediate family. Witness to all the arguments in my house last week, much less a whole thousands of people being one in heart and mind. That's a miracle. That's only the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's awesome. That's great unity, great power, lives being changed, and great sacrifice. This guy sold a field. It's like if someone today sold their house. Oh, you sold your house. Buying a new one? Actually, no. Oh, what are you doing? Uh, I'm bringing the check from the title company to contribution, and I'm giving it to Jesus. That's great sacrifice, would you not say? That's what this guy did, Barnabas. Okay? Now, let's skip this next part of chapter 5, and let's move on to verse 12. I'm actually going to do this, uh, and then we're going to go back. Because we're not going to skip, skip. We're just going to skip over for a moment the whole fear of the Lord stuff. Because I kind of like this other message. Verse 12, chapter 5. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one dared, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. So this group was a little scary, but respected. Interesting, huh? Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on the beds and mats so at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits and all of them were healed. We start to see here the word of God, the power of God, the gospel of God starting to spread outside of Jerusalem, just like Acts chapter 1, 8, 
uh, says. And we're going to see that more of that in chapter 8 and beyond. Okay, so here we see more greatness of God. Great change in people's lives being healed. Uh, great unity again. Great respect. The church is highly regarded amongst the people. Think about that and how church is viewed amongst the people today. Um, great growth and great blessing. Um, as we like to say, it's all good. It's all good, right? And I love how Chase said, you think once you get baptized, it's just all good, it's all blessing, it's all popular awesomeness. But the truth is, it's not all good. That's not the reality until heaven. In heaven, it's all good. Until then, we got a mixture. Amen? We got a mixture of good, and we got a mixture of struggle and hardship and opposition because the church has an enemy. And God has an enemy, and that is Satan, and he doesn't rest and move on to the next one, like Chase said. He attacks the church. We've already seen him attack the church in chapter 4 through outward persecution or physical force. But now he attacks the church with one of his second great weapons, and that's internal compromise. Internal compromise. And don't you think that that's not the same way he's attacking us and you today? So let's read the whole message. Now chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now before any of our cynicalness gets carried away, trust me, this is not a message about contribution. Okay, because Peter says, so Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they sell a piece of land and it says they kept back, I'll explain that word in a minute, part of it for themselves. But Peter says, uh, dude, it's your property. You can do your property, whatever you want. So some people throughout history have taken this, that the Bible promotes communism, the Bible promotes socialism, because right here, no one had individual property and it was all just communal. That's not true because Peter here says, dude, it's your, I don't know if he said dude. He said, sir, it's your, wasn't it at your disposal? Right? It's your property. You didn't have to sell it. No one is compelling you to give a free will offering. It's a free will offering. Okay? Um, so this isn't a message about contribution. Well, what is it a message about? Well, there's more hinting at this. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. 
Talk about a lesson for the young brothers. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Is this the price? So I think Peter is wanting to give him one, more, one, one last chance. Be honest. Be real. Don't do this. Don't lie. Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church. In all who heard about these events, great fear seized the church. Now we think, oh, if the church is seized with great fear, then that they must say, but they repented of this and they got back to being secure in God, so then all those good things later happened. It's not what it says, is it? Great fear seized the church and that was a good thing. How do we know? Well, let's look over in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Acts chapter 9, verse 31 says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. So, Living in the fear of the Lord. Again, it's like this is, this is what the Holy Spirit, this is a characteristic of the New Testament church, is that it lives in the fear of the Lord. Okay? Now let's talk about, actually, we'll, we're, we're going to, let's see. Let me get back to my notes. Okay. Great fear. Okay. What, what, what happened here with Ananias and Sapphira? We're going to talk about what happened. Then we're going to talk about what it meant, meant on a micro, what it means on a micro level. And then we're going to talk about what it means on a macro level, this fear of the Lord concept. Okay? And then what that means for our lives today. Okay? So what happened here? Um, they kept, Ananias kept back. The word is nasphizomai. Don't know if that's exactly how you pronounce it. I'm sure it's not. But that's the word. And it means actually to misappropriate, to misappropriate. And we had an experience in Eau Claire County, right, of over the past few years that the treasurer and the secretary misappropriated funds. They stole funds. You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. And they were judged, I believe they're in jail right now. But this is a similar, it's a misappropriation. So somehow... Um, in the Septuagint, it's actually the same word for Achan's theft in Joshua chapter 7. So Joshua chapter 7, then the Old Covenant, and Achan, if you don't know Achan, go ahead and read chapter 7. It's a, it's a parallel. Many theologians feel like the, what happened there was a parallel to what happened here. It's the same word that's used. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's translated as steal. So Achan took some of the... Uh, devoted things. He, he saw some, 
good-looking gold and that sort of thing, kept it for himself, hid it, lied, hid it, and it brought destruction on the, all the people of God. So you say, well, this is just about me in my life. No, you, are, you don't live in a bubble, especially in the family of God. What you decide to do is brought into the whole people, the whole community, right? So it's serious. Uh, Western individualism spirituality is not how it works, okay? Um, anyways, we'll talk about that later. So basically, somehow, we don't know if, if they had agreed that an amount beforehand that to, to give, or we don't know if Malachi chapter 2, where it says if we don't give our tithes and offerings, that it's stealing from God. We don't know why this exactly was interpreted as stealing or kept back, but there's two things that we do know that were wrong. Okay, One was they kept back from an amount that they, they, they had somehow uh, uh, pledged or agreed to keep giving ahead of time, but the other was that they, they lied about it. They deliberately deceived. We know it was deliberate because Ananias and Sapphira had to talk and come up with a plan on how to keep more for themselves and then how to cover it up. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a uh, oh, I slipped into temptation. It was very deliberate. And we know that because when she came and Peter asked her that, she had a prepared answer. Yep, that was the amount. Okay? Does that make sense? Um, so some sort of a deliberate, defiant, deceptive conspiracy with Ananias and Sapphira to steal. And Peter said, what made you think of doing such a thing? Good question. It's a good question. Good question to ask ourselves. When we struggle, what, what, what are we thinking? What did make us think of doing such a thing? There's two loves that Annas and Sapphira struggled with that in this instance trumped their love for God. See, Annas and Sapphira were disciples. Annas and Sapphira gave a lot of money to God for God's purposes. This wasn't, this wasn't someone who's not a disciple. So there is a love for God, but there's also two loves. There's a love for money, and there's a love for the approval of men. Okay? With me there? These loves combined to hatch a deliberate, deceptive plan. They wanted to be praised probably like Barnabas was. They wanted to be esteemed in the church. They wanted to be respected by their peers, but they also wanted a little bit nicer house or whatever. They wanted to keep that money for. All right? Now, money is not the root of all evil. Bible says that riches can be used generously to help advance God's kingdom. So money is not evil in and of itself. But the love of money is the root of all evil, Bible says. So I can be richy-rich and not struggle with money. And I can be poor as they come, and I can really struggle with wanting more and more and more. Are you with me there? So let's be careful never to judge the rich or the poor. Let's all be aware of our temptation for the love of more. How much money is enough? Just a little more. Whoever someone said that. I don't know. Not Jesus. Okay. Um, these guys, it was love of money. Our flesh, maybe it's not money. Maybe it's love of success. Maybe it's love of sports. 
Maybe it's love of security. Maybe it's love of sex. Maybe it's love of pleasure. We all have a fleshly love that we better be careful doesn't trump our love for God. Amen? Because when that trumps our love for God, then we're going to come up with schemes of ways to deliberately sin and deceive. Okay? And the love of man's approval. Okay? We talked about that already. These loves created a double-mindedness in Ananias and Sapphira. They did love God, but they also loved other things. Okay? And here's something you're going to learn about God. God, Satan, loves double-mindedness. Satan doesn't want you to love all of himself and become a totally devoted follower of his. He just wants you to be half and half. But God's not into half and half. So, oh, who's God? He thinks, uh, he's God. Okay? Some of you are married. Are you cool with half and half from spouse? Well, I'll have a little bit of you, and I'll have a little bit of neighbor Joe, and I have a little bit of friendly Fred. Sound good? Till death do us part. Nope, actually doesn't sound good. When you go work out your business, come back when you're ready to go all in. Amen? Right? Why would God be any different? Why would God be any different? And yet, somehow, it's acceptable 2,000 years later for a little bit of love of God and a lot of love of everything else. In our Christian society, wrong, not true. This combination led to moral compromise, and it then led to the immediate death, judgment of God. Now, this is a whoa moment. Okay, and we can struggle with, well, that doesn't quite seem fair. It seems a little harsh or seems a little intense, kind of came out of nowhere. Weren't they just struggling like you and I? Okay, well, let's talk about this. Let's go over to Luke chapter 12. Wait a second, though. Wait a second. Did Jesus not teach and warn and instruct about this exact thing? Now, the Bible says the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is death. Now, we think that that means the death, like, of course we think, way far away. The reality is God is outside of time. So sometimes death is far away if God is patient with us. But there's cases in biblical history where at times the death is immediate. And I don't think that it's just God killing, but it can be that God withdraws. He's the source of life. He's the breath of life. He's the sustainer of life. And he says, you choose to sin, despite warning after warning, you choose to sin, I'm just going to withdraw and let you reap what you sow. Okay? And in Belshazzar and Daniel chapter 5, died immediately. Nadab and Abihu died immediately. Achan died immediately. Every one of these three acts were premeditated, deliberate acts of defiance, despite the law, despite the prophets, despite the teachings, despite warning after warning. And I believe it's here in Acts chapter 5 to warn us, don't mess with the spirit of the living God. Fear God. Luke chapter 12. Verse 1, meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another. Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, be on your guard. 
against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, moral compromise. Be on your guard, guys. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Ananias and Sapphira whispering in the inner room. Let's keep this a secret. Let's not tell anyone. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Where, I, don't, I don't feel much cotton candy going on right now, Jesus. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? So God knows the intimate details of the workings of our minds and our scheming. Indeed, the very heads of your, hairs of your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. And I believe that was Sapphira's chance. She had a chance. You know what? I was wrong. We were wrong. What if she would have done that? I think she would have lived and be a heroine of repentance and God's grace but a deliberate choice to keep on deceiving and to keep on sinning resulted in what did result. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Blas what does that mean? We're not going to go into it, but I believe... Um, that it means deliberate choice to test God. A deliberate and conscious choice to defy and test God. Every one of my kids have, have, have done that at various times in their life. I'm going to make a deliberate and conscious choice to defy, and I'm going to test dad and mom, and we're going to see how this goes. It's my responsibility as a parent at that point to make sure that they see how it goes. You with me there? No, I'm not going to kill them. <laughs> They're all alive. But they do, need to, they do need to understand that you don't test God. This is, this is for your blessing and good. Okay, so the wages of sin is death. How, when, and we die varies, but every death... I believe, reminds us that life is a gift. We didn't earn our life. We didn't create our life. Our breath is a gift. The air we breathe. Who, who, who have you manufactured the air that you're breathing right now? Who, 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 who have you created the food that you ate this morning to get you through church? Um, right? That was a gift. And when there's death, it's a sober reminder that Life is a gift. I'm going to skip the Hebrews 10 scripture. You say, well, that's just Old Testament. That's just Old Covenant stuff. Hebrews 10, very clearly, 26 through 31, studied on your own. Hebrews 10 tells us that if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received a knowledge of the truth, that there's no sacrifice left for sin. In other words, this is someone who's becoming a Christian, a true Christian, 
and yet they've slipped back into sin, but their sin is regaining power, and it's not just a one-time little struggle. It's now become a deliberate choice to deceive, to sin, to hide, to keep going and going and going, and you can fall outside of God's grace. That's what the Bible teaches. An idea that once you're saved, you're always saved, is a false teaching, not from the Word of God. Amen. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. So what did this mean on a micro level for Ananias and Sapphira in the church? It meant, number one, the gravity of sin. Let us never take sin lightly. Amen? Sin is serious. It's a killer. You don't, your house, you don't, your house burning on fire, you're like, oh, I'll get around to it. Wait till halftime to get out, you know, because it's an important game. The gravity of sin. Are you treating your struggles in your sin seriously? Now, some of us, we get over-accused, and it's like, okay, but some of us, we get under-accused, and we need to take sin seriously. This sin, I'd say, was rather serious. And the Spirit dealt with it in a serious manner. Okay? Secondly, it means the sacredness of conscience. Conscience. Clear conscience. When we make Jesus Lord, we pledge a good conscience. Does that mean I'll never struggle or sin again? No. But it does mean when I do struggle, I'm going to get in the light. 1 John 1, 5, James 5, 16, etc., etc., Psalm over, okay? I'm going to get in the light, and I'm not going to hide, because when we hide, what happens? It gets more powerful, and it's only a matter of time before it gets worse, and it gets worse. And pretty, pretty soon, we find ourselves in the muck and the mire that Jesus rescued us out of, okay? Sacredness of conscience. There was a group in East Africa that preached, and this was one of their central messages, having a clear conscience, which I think is a good message. Um, they, they compared it to living in a house with no ceiling and no walls. That means my life, there's nothing hidden between me and God. There's no ceiling. So everything that I do in my house, outside my house, there's nothing hidden and no walls. That means anything that goes on in and around my life is completely transparent to all the people around. What would society do with a conscience with no ceiling and no walls? I would think, I know it helped me resist temptation. Amen? Okay. Sacredness of conscience. Do you have a clear conscience today? What is on your conscience? You have a choice. You have a choice to clear your conscience today by just opening up. No ceiling and no walls. And don't be deceived. Well, I'll just handle me and God. You're deceived. You're deceived. Because God just doesn't do you and me. He does you and us. And number three, it meant necessity of church discipline. The church is not a place where it's just accept all, whoever, everything, anything goes. Just come. 
That's not, the, that's not what we see. Um, the church must deal with ongoing, deliberate sin in itself. If it doesn't, now we are a place of moral compromise, and the little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Matthew 18 says, if your brother or sister sins, talk to him personally. If he chooses not to repent, take two or three others. If they still choose to not repent, bring it before the church. And after that, remove them from the fellowship, which means they are not in God's church. Okay? In cases of severe divisiveness, it says don't even, have, don't even eat with them. Don't even talk to them until they choose to repent and want to come back. You with me there? Now, that's not a cotton candy message, is it? But it protects the integrity of what God, who God is, who the Spirit is. What the, so either the church disciplines itself and removes ongoing, unrepentant, deliberate sin, or eventually the Spirit will remove Himself from that community. Because the Spirit clearly is not having it. Now again, this doesn't mean I, I, I stumble into um, some sin and I'm out. Okay? Get out of here. This is a holy place. That's not what it means. But it does mean if you deliberately choose to sin and deceive and hide and you've been taught and you've been warned, and you've been pleaded with, and you've had your best friends around you telling you the truth, and yet you still say, I don't want that. I want to sin, and I'm not changing. Then you're out. That's what it means. That's what we must do. On a macro level, the fear of the Lord is a right and good and life-giving thing. It is right to fear the Lord. I heard the other day, I don't think God wants me to fear Him. He wants me to cuddle up cozy with Him. There's truth in that, that God longs for intimacy. He, we're to be confident in approaching Him in the blood of Jesus. And we're to communicate, Abba, Father, Daddy. That's true. But what we miss is how to get to that intimacy is through the fear of the Lord. Amen? You're not convinced? Let me read you some scriptures. Proverbs 9, verse 10. We got these? Okay, Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of God, it's a good thing. It gets you going on the right path. Proverbs 10, 27. The fear of the Lord adds length to your life, but the years of wicked are cut short. So, so far, fearing God starts you into wisdom. It lengthens your life, chapter 14, verse 26 and 27. Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress. Interesting, fear, which isn't always just interpreted anxiousness, it's interpreted reverence and respect. Though, let's not go too far with that. If you get a bolt of lightning in your front yard, I hope you're a little afraid. Okay? For their children, it will be a refuge. So if you live in the fear of the Lord, you pass on a blessing to your children and grandchildren. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. Proverbs 15, 33, wisdom's instruction 
is to fear the Lord. Humility comes before honor. Chapter 16, verse 6. Maybe. I'll read it. Proverbs 16, verse 6. Well, I'm sure it was my fault, not, not theirs. Don't blame them. Proverbs 16, verse 6. Though love and faithfulness sin is atoned through through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, man avoids evil. Okay? Need some help avoiding evil? Deepen your fear of God. Chapter 19, verse 23, last one. It says, The fear of the Lord leads to life. Then one rests content, untouched by trouble. Do you see the relationship between the reverence of God and all the incredible blessings? The fear of the Lord that begins wisdom. It lengthens life. It makes you secure. It brings a blessing to your kids. It's a fountain of life. It frees you from death. It gives you wisdom and honor. It helps you avoid evil. It's life. It's contentment. It's restful. And it makes you untouched by trouble. And yet we think that God doesn't want us to fear him. I think God does want us to fear him for these reasons and many more. What's this look like? Just to close, number one, it looks like worship unceasing. To live in the fear of the Lord, in the book of Acts, they continually were in awe of God. Worship unceasing. Worship just doesn't mean Sunday singing. It means laying your life down at the altar. All of it. Amen? It means a purification process is joined. 2 Corinthians 7 1 says, We purify ourselves out of reverence for God. Purity comes from boundaries around money, around sex, around priorities, around family. Boundaries of those things are respected, not disregarded. Purity process joins means when we do compromise those boundaries, we tell the whole truth, nothing truth. The whole tr we tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us, God. So when we struggle, we love the truth. And we don't make people battleship for what's really going on in our lives. G4, miss. <laughs> no, here's where my battleship is, right here. I'm not hiding. Okay, there's a culture of submission. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When we fear God as a church, when we as a church live in the fear of the Lord, there's a culture of mutual submission. Respect, honor, desire to be one. And 2 Corinthians 5.11, since we know what it is to fear God, we try to persuade men. How can we watch this and listen to this? This wages of sin, how can we look at that, know this, and know the fear of our God ourselves, and yet be so nicey-nice when it comes to trying to make disciples? It says we try to persuade men. I'm trying to go out there to be persuasive, not fit into their busy little schedule. I don't care about your schedule. You get to church because someday we're all going to face a holy God. Amen? How persuasive are you? Okay, guys, you like cotton candy too? All right, let's get it. Cotton candy at the fair, not at church. Amen? We, we're seeing great things in the book of Acts. We're seeing great unity, great power. Changed lives, incredible families, incredible family of God, God-glorifying growth. But we also see great fear. Let us together be seized with fear like them. 
the fear of God and live life that is truly life as we live together in the fear of the Lord. Amen. Love you guys. Tyler's going to come up, do a contribution and announcements, and we're going to sing one last song.